Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. When voters in Scotland decided in 2014 to reject independence and keep their nation in the United Kingdom, both sides in the debate regarded the matter as settled for a generation. There would be no second chance at securing independence in most voters' lifetimes. But when, just two years later, the United Kingdom voted to take itself out of the European Union, all bets were off. A large majority of Scots, 62%, had voted to remain in the EU. Having already opted to stay in the UK, Scotland was now being taken out of the European Union against its will. Nicola Sturgeon, Scotland's First Minister and leader of the Scottish National Party, is now committed to offering Scots another chance at independence, and by extension, a route back into the EU. But can such a referendum be legally held as long as the British government in London sets its face against one? as is the case now, under the Prime Ministership of Boris Johnson, who insists that the matter was settled for a generation in 2014. Later in the podcast, we'll hear about the imprisonment earlier this week of a Catalonian rapper for insulting the Spanish royal family in his lyrics. What's behind this seemingly draconian move? But it's that Scottish independence story first, and our London editor Dennis Staunton is on the line. Dennis, what did bring a new independence referendum back into prospect so soon after the vote in 2014? Is this all because of Brexit? It certainly goes back to Brexit. And so after the Brexit referendum, what the Scottish Nationalists said was, you've changed the terms. The promise was, uh, the promise that the uh, the Remain or the uh, uh, the no to independence side made in the 2014 election was, if you stay in the United Kingdom, you'll be able to stay in the European Union. If you leave the United Kingdom, it's not clear if you will be able to get uh, into the European Union. As so they said, you've changed the, the nature of of the constitutional settlement in Scotland by leaving the European Union as well. And so uh, that strengthened their argument. Then what happened was that in the the 2017 election uh, at Westminster, the SNP won almost all the seats in Scotland. And they also continued to, uh, they remained the dominant force in the devolved parliament in Edinburgh as well. So that uh, the position of the SNP strengthened And then what further strengthened their case was that Nicola Sturgeon, when she took over from Alex Salmond after the 2014 uh, referendum, she was a much more appealing political figure, and particularly to women voters. And so you found this shift of support where uh, women in Scotland, uh, suddenly support among women uh, for independence started to go up. And then what you've also seen in the years since Brexit has been that the nature of support for the Scottish National Party has changed so that at the time of, uh, say, the referendum in 2014, about a third of the people who voted for the SNP didn't vote for independence. Now that's gone. And so it's essentially it's 90 percent or thereabouts of the people who uh, voted for independence back the SNP. And likewise, SNP voters are overwhelmingly in favour of independence. And so the the SNP leadership doesn't really have to uh, make the case uh, to its own membership or its own supporters uh, for independence or for another referendum. And then the final thing, which has really made a difference in terms of polling, has been Nicholas Sturgeon's handling of the coronavirus pandemic, which has been perceived in Scotland as being much, much better than the way Boris Johnson handled it down here in London. And Boris Johnson himself is obviously a very unpopular figure in Scotland. So all of these things together have put it back on the agenda and also increased support. And 
Independence was rejected in 2014 by a 55% majority. It was 55% no, 45% yes. So what do the opinion polls tell us about the current state of play then? Well, there have been 21 successive polls which have put independence ahead. And that's either uh, by a majority or a plurality. But certainly once you take the don't knows out of the equation, it's been consistently uh, above 50% for these last uh, 21 polls. So it's quite clear that, uh, you know, in terms of polling, there is now, if the question was asked today, there is a majority in Scotland in favour of independence. And that's a new thing. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, what happened in a way after 2014 was that the independence case held on to that 45%, but uh, they struggled even after Brexit to push it consistently past 50. That they've really done over the last year. And so it's, uh, you know, and again, it's a combination of these factors of Nicola Sturgeon's performance, but also Boris Johnson, who couldn't really be a worse person to make the case for the union in Scotland. Now, Nicola Sturgeon, then we know, is committed to holding a new referendum, but it's one thing for her to make that pledge, but does she have the authority to deliver on it without the approval of the government in London? Well, that depends on who you talk to. The the Scotland Act, which uh, is the devolution settlement for Scotland, that says that uh, the issues of constitution, the constitution and independence, that they are reserved powers to Westminster. And so that it's actually for Westminster, not Edinburgh, to decide on these. But what happened in the last referendum in 2014 was that David Cameron agreed to what's called an Article 30 order, uh, which essentially gave this power back to Uh, the Scottish Parliament and said, uh, we at Westminster grant you this power on this one-off basis to make this decision about holding a referendum. So the preferred route would be uh, that, you know, they would ask for, you know, Nicola Sturgeon would ask for uh, a a referendum, ask for Boris Johnson to to deliver this Section 30 order and uh, then have the referendum. Boris Johnson has said he's not doing that and he's got no intention of doing it. And so uh, then, uh, you know, opinion, both legal and political, is divided as to what you do. There is a group within the SNP, uh, some of whom are opponents of uh, of Nicola Sturgeon because they think she's too cautious, people like Joanna Cherry, an MP, uh, who believe that actually you could uh, have that, that Scottish law and that the Constitution would actually, despite the Scotland Act, allow uh, the Scottish Parliament to uh, legislate on its own to have a referendum. The danger, of course, there is that if Scotland goes ahead, the Scottish Parliament authorises a referendum and London says it doesn't want it. Will unionists uh, boycott the referendum? Will you have something like the you saw in Catalonia? Uh, and so, so there are, you know, what they're doing now, in a way, is to explore all kinds of routes. One of the ideas that they have is that the expectation is that in May of uh, this year that the SNP will win a majority uh, of the seats in the Scottish Parliament. So they will certainly legislate at that stage to, uh, to have a referendum. And if Boris Johnson says no, they'll possibly try some legal route. Uh, 
And uh, and then if he contrives somehow uh, to cut off the legal path, which he can simply by legislating, that then they will push it to the 2024 Westminster election. And if uh, the Scottish National Party wins a majority of the seats, they will say going into that, that they are going to view this as a mandate for independence. And what they then might seek to do is to have a referendum without the approval of Westminster on starting the negotiations. So a referendum say, do you agree that the Scottish government should be open negotiations with the United Kingdom government about independence? And they believe that that is legal and that it, you know, it's, it's an alternative route. So there are a number of avenues open to them. They're all, they're all going to take a long time and they're all a bit messy. But at the same time, uh, if you have a majority of the, the population quite clearly uh, voting for parties that are in favour of independence, and opinion polls consistently saying that uh, you know that there's a majority for independence, then it does put the government in London in a difficult position if they keep saying no. And tell us more, Dennis, about Boris Johnson's position. Is it a kind of straight up no to going this Section 30 route that you mentioned, um, or is he leaving open any room to manoeuvre? No, it's a very hardline position, and he's offering no compromises. Uh, Boris Johnson recently uh, sacked a guy called Luke Graham, who's a former Scottish MP who was heading up uh, his unit for the union and for uh, try, you know, the strategy for trying to, uh, to discourage the Scots from voting for independence. And uh, Luke Graham had been taking a kind of a fairly uh, emollient approach and even talking about ideas of uh, how you improve the devolution settlement. Boris Johnson has now put in Oliver Lewis, uh, one of the Vote Leave uh, campaigners, who will take a much more aggressive line. And, uh, and Johnson's approach is to say devolution effectively has led to this demand for independence. So we're not going to offer you more of that. We're actually just going to resist and try to uh, make the argument that actually Scotland can't afford to be independent. It can't afford it uh, economically. It can't afford it diplomatically. And, you know, and essentially to paint up the advantage, to talk up the advantages of being in the United Kingdom and constantly to go on about the difficulties and the expense and the complications that independence would bring. And what impact is that hardline stance of Johnson's having on the debate in Scotland? Well, it appears on the basis of the polls to be having a pretty negative effect from his point of view because support for independence has been going up since he appeared in Downing Street. And uh, and also, if you look at the opinion polls for uh, you know, looking ahead to the, uh, the uh, elections in May, for the first time in 10 years, it looks like the Scottish National Party are going to uh, win an overall majority. They've been in power for that long, but they've depended on the support of other parties. At the moment, it's the Greens. Uh, and so even if they don't win an overall majority, the Greens look as if they're doing well. So there's quite clearly going to be a majority in the Parliament for independence. And there's no sign of any movement in the polls for the Conservatives who are lurking around 20%. And what about Labour in all of this, Dennis? Because you mentioned how the Scottish National Party, their strategy may take them up to the 2024 Westminster election. You could, of course, have a change of administration then. Um, Would that change the dynamic in any way? Well, uh, I mean, it could change the dynamic. At the moment, the Scottish Labour Party, its position is unionist 
all its supporters basically are unionists and so it's, uh, it can't really move off that. But what Keir Starmer has been saying is that uh, he wants to, uh, you know, he opposes another referendum and he opposes Scottish independence, but he does want a new constitutional settlement for the whole of the United Kingdom, which would mean more devolution to Scotland. Now, when you come to 2024, uh, it's certainly a very real possibility that neither the Conservatives nor Labour win an overall majority, and then the Scottish National Party would hold the balance of power. And then the question is, what do they do with that? Can they persuade Keir Starmer to agree to a referendum, uh, if it is indeed still Keir Starmer? And, uh, and what does that do to Labour? Now, Labour has only one seat in Scotland, one Westminster seat in Scotland at the moment. And again, it's, it's, uh, it's poll rating in Scotland is, is under 20%, sort of the high teens. There's, you know, but having said that, a lot of the uh, the Westminster seats in Scotland are very, very marginal seats. And in most cases, they are SNP Labour marginals. So it wouldn't take all that much for Labour suddenly to have a few more seats or indeed for them to lose the only seat they have left. That wouldn't take too much either. But you know, so what you could find is that suddenly the uh, Labour survival in Scotland would be a crucial part of Labour's electoral strategy again. And that would complicate fact, the, the, the whole question of what to do about Scotland for, uh, you know, for Keir Starmer. Uh, so, you know, certainly there's no question but that the price of Scottish support for any minority Labour government would undoubtedly be to have a referendum uh, if, you know, for, uh, on independence. But uh, whether he's able to deliver that or not is another matter. If they don't get it, I think what they're likely to do is to cause an awful lot of uh, trouble in uh, at Westminster, rather in the way that the Irish Parliamentary Party did at the end of the 19th century. Yeah, indeed, you, you mentioned there the, the the prospect, I suppose, of the Scottish National Party having a majority in the House of Commons, as did the, the Irish Parliamentary Party, as you just said, um, at the time of the, the Home Rule campaign and, and all of that. And then subsequently, of course, you had the 1918 election and you had Sinn Féin um, going into that election with a mandate for independence, if you like, and setting up the Irish doll. So to what extent are the Scottish National Party looking back at that whole Irish experience, Dennis, and maybe drawing some um, lessons from it? They are looking back very, very closely at it. They've always been studying both that the the, the Parnellite uh, period and also that moment in 1918. Certainly one of the ideas under consideration by parts of the SNP is precisely what you describe, that actually that the 2024 Westminster election they would present it as being an equivalent of the 1918 election in Ireland and that that would be this mandate for independence. And uh, now whether they're actually then going to be able to go and just uh, sort of declare that the Holyrood Parliament is now the Parliament of an independent state, that's not the matter. That takes us all a little bit further, further down uh, the track. We need to talk for a moment, Dennis, I think, about the Scottish National Party itself and its its current uh, travails. Because at the at the time of the 2014 referendum, as you mentioned earlier, Alex Salmond was the leader. He stepped down immediately afterwards and was succeeded by Nicola Sturgeon. And at that at that time, I think they had a very close relationship. They don't now. They they've fallen out quite badly, and this has had some knock on effects on relationships within the the SNP. Um, I'd like to get your view in a moment on, on how those internal difficulties may or may not affect the campaign for independence. But first, can you just tell us what went wrong in that relationship between Alex Almond and Nicola Sturgeon? Well, what happened was that uh, two or three years ago, 
some allegations were made by uh, people who had worked with Alex Salmond, either in the Scottish National Party or in the Scottish government, about uh, sexual harassment on his part. And so uh, a number of women came forward and made these complaints. And, uh, and, and then uh, Nicola Sturgeon uh, and her government had to investigate these complaints. Now, uh, the reason that they had to investigate them was because uh, she had, the Scottish government had introduced uh, a new law regarding, uh, or, or a new procedure, should we say, regarding uh, you know, how uh, these allegations such as this within the Scottish government should be dealt with. And what they did was to make it retrospective. And this was perceived by Alex Salmon's uh, supporters subsequently as being uh, a deliberate act because it meant that they, uh, you know, if there were such allegations against Alex Salmond, that he would be caught in this particular net of this new procedure. So, uh, so uh, what Alex Salmond's people say is that when um, it came to the investigation of all of this by the Scottish government, uh, that uh, that the investigation was entirely biased and it was uh, extremely badly handled. So, first of all, there is uh, an inquiry right now going on to, into, in Scotland, in the Parliament, into exactly how this was being handled. But, sub, but after all of that, uh, the criminal charges were presented against Alex Salmond right up to attempted rape. And he went on trial and he was acquitted last year on all charges. And so since then, uh, you know, these investigations have been uh, rumbling on, one into whether uh, Nicola Sturgeon broke the ministerial code by not telling the truth about how much she knew about these allegations. And that investigation is being run by an Irish barrister, Liam Hamilton. And then there's this uh, parliamentary committee in Edinburgh, which is investigating uh, the, the handling of the complaints in general. And that has a majority of SNP members on it. And so the uh, Alex Salmond and his allies basically say it's all a stitch up. And they uh, and the, essentially their allegation is that all of these allegations were part of a conspiracy to prevent Alex Salmond from making a comeback, which could threaten the leadership of Nicola Sturgeon. That's their theory. And has the party kind of broken into two factions now between the, the supporters of Salmond and, and, and Nicola Sturgeon supporters? Yes, they're, uh, but, uh, but they're uh, lopsided factions. So the overwhelming majority of SNP members and SNP supporters and SNP elected representatives are with Nicola Sturgeon. But there is a, a small and uh, quite lively group who, uh, who support Alex Salmond. And these tend to share two other uh, beliefs. One is that uh, Nicola Sturgeon is too timid uh, in her approach to independence. And so they want to have a much more aggressive uh, you know, uh, approach, uh, essentially uh, ignoring the question of whether Westminster wants to agree to a referendum or not, and just going ahead anyway. And they tend to satirise uh, uh, Nicola Sturgeon's approach as being wished for independence. And uh, the, uh, the other thing is that they all, almost uniformly, oppose 
transgender rights. And I don't understand what these things have in common. Nobody understands why. But uh, for some reason, the leading figures in the Alex Salmon support group tend to be opponents of transgender rights and opponents of uh, Nicola Sturgeon's strategy on independence. It all looks a bit unseemly, Dennis, and it can't be good for the standing of the Scottish National Party and its leading players. Does it have any implications for the independence campaign? Unionists and Conservatives like to think that it has, but there's so far no real evidence of it because the fact is that Nicola Sturgeon is a very, very popular politician in Scotland, all the more so because of her handling of the uh, of the, the pandemic. She's had daily press conferences. She's presented them herself. Uh, she's a very, very good communicator. I mean, she is really one of the most gifted politicians anywhere in Europe and certainly in these islands. And so, uh, and Alex Salmond is not uh, a popular politician. And in fact, uh, talking to Professor John Curtis, the uh, election expert last week, he was saying that uh, Alex Salmond has the unusual distinction of being even more unpopular in Scotland than than Boris Johnson. So uh, in that sense, uh, it, it hasn't really been damaging uh, the party and its standing that much. There's also a question as to whether you know, people are really following these arcane details about who knew what, when, about a particular inquiry which never really led to anything anyway, and it's all quite a long time ago. And so so I, it doesn't seem to have cut through in the way that uh, Nicholas Sturgeon's enemies would hope that it had. Okay. So on the question then of independence, Dennis, what kind of potential timetable do you think we're looking at here? What would be your best guess as to when Scots might get another chance to vote on it? on independence? Well, it's hard to see uh, Boris Johnson's government uh, allowing uh, a referendum before the next election in 2024. And so uh, you're probably talking about after that, because even if um, the, you know, if the SNP go through all of these other uh, legal uh, hurdles or legal routes, it's still, uh, you know, we're now 2021. We're getting quite close to, you know, to to, uh, to 2024 by the time you get to next year. So I think that uh, it's unlikely to happen before then. But an awful lot of other things could very easily happen in terms of uh, you know changing the atmosphere. And certainly, if the uh, if the SNP do very well at the uh, at the May elections, and if they keep asking Boris Johnson and he keeps saying no to a referendum. If the courts in Scotland say it's okay to have a referendum and he introduces a law to ban it, which is one of the things he could do, all of these things are likely to increase support for independence and to make his approach and the unionist approach appear much more unreasonable. Okay, and finally, Dennis, on the EU question, I mean, you have a close working knowledge of how things operate um, from from the other side, if you like, from the EU side. If Scotland does have another referendum and uh, does vote yes to independence this time, would EU membership inevitably follow or could we expect that member states such as Spain, for example, who have an, an aversion to independence movements for their own reasons, might they act to ensure that Scotland is never allowed in? I think a couple of things have changed in that respect since the last referendum, because certainly in 2014, uh, leaders of the European Union, uh, as well as the Spanish government, made clear that, uh, first of all, there would be nothing automatic about Scotland getting into the EU, but also in the case of Spain, that they would oppose it because of the precedent it would set in terms of separatism. I think the Scottish government have been lobbying quite successfully in Spain to persuade uh, the Spanish government that there is uh, an argument which says that the Spanish constitution uh, it, it prohibits separatism, whereas the British constitution 
clearly doesn't because you've had a referendum already. And obviously also the complexion of the Spanish government now is one that is less hardline when it comes to uh, the separatist question. So I think Spain mightn't be uh, you know, such a huge difficulty. I think the other thing that has changed politically is that in 2014, a government like, say, Ireland, which officially kept out of the Scottish referendum, uh, privately it wanted Scots to say no to independence. And it wanted that for uh, a few reasons. One was because uh, Britain was uh, the neighbouring state which was a big ally in the European Union. And so anything that would weaken this ally in the European Union uh, was something to be uh, discouraged. And secondly, it would have created a, a rival around the same size as ourselves within the European Union, uh, possibly within or outside. And uh, at the same time, you know, uh, it would disrupt this relationship with Britain. And thirdly, of course, the idea that it might disrupt uh, relationships in Northern Ireland. Now, Brexit has changed all of that for Ireland, because uh, obviously the disruption in Northern Ireland has happened because of Brexit. And also, uh, Britain has left the European Union. And so for other EU countries, they don't necessarily have a particular interest in Britain remaining as strong as it is now. And certainly, if you had this new member state, which uh, you know shared uh, the values the European Union says it holds and is you know, reasonably prosperous and is fully democratic, then why would you, uh, you know, why would you fundamentally object to Scotland joining? There are other complications in terms of joining the European Union to do, for example, with the level of indebtedness an independent Scotland would have. But those are all, in a way, part of the negotiations for independence. But I think that the, you know, the fundamental difficulty that many EU member states might have had uh, with the idea of Scotland coming in while the United Kingdom was still a member of the European Union, I think those would not be so strong in the current circumstances. Dennis, thank you. Now, for the past two nights, the streets of Spanish cities have been filled with protesters. They've been demonstrating against the jailing of a rapper, Pablo Hassel, for insulting the royal family and glorifying terrorism in his lyrics and tweets. International human rights organisations and celebrities, including Pedro Almodovar and Javier Bardem, have called for Hassel's release and for reform of Spain's freedom of speech laws. Our producer, Declan Conlon, has been finding out more. At a sitting of Spain's National Parliament last Tuesday, one of the MPs stood up, took out his phone and stuck on some hip-hop. The artist, rapper Pablo Hassel, had been sent to prison the day before. The MP said Hassel's imprisonment was like something from the saddest dictatorship. Hassel was convicted last year. He was supposed to hand himself over to authorities last Friday to serve his nine-month term. Instead, he staged a standoff, forcing police to arrest him and bringing national and international attention to his case and bringing protesters out onto the streets of Barcelona, Madrid and other cities across the country. But why are Hassel and his music seen as such a threat? Guy Hedgeko is our correspondent in Madrid. Pablo Hassel is a 33-year-old rapper from Lleida, up in Catalonia, in the northeast of the country. He was found guilty of insulting the crown, the Spanish crown, and of glorifying terrorism due to the content of several dozen tweets that he'd posted and also due to the lyrical content of one of his songs. The song in question that he was convicted for is called Juan Carlos El Bobón. 
Cuántos millones y millones han saqueado y derrochado. It's about the former Spanish king, Juan Carlos El Borbón, who abdicated in 2014. It's a play on words, kind of calling him, instead of calling him El Borbón, calling him an idiot, essentially. He was accusing the former king, Juan Carlos, of being you know, a mafia boss of corrupt business practices. Um, he talked about his um, his tawdry private life. He talked about his relationship with Saudi Arabia, sort of questionable, an ethically questionable, questionable relationship with Saudi Arabia, as he put it, um, which feeds into human rights abuses in the Middle East. You know, the fact that he's now been jailed for that, he feels that that is almost vindication for, for the message that he's been singing about all this time. There is a specific law against insulting the crown in Spain. There have been a, a lot of cases over the years, for example, people burning photographs of the king in the past. That's been an issue. And then more recently, we've seen these cases of people rapping against the king, saying things about the king or the, or the former king, or saying things about the royal family in tweets. So while the case of, of Pablo Hassel um, does appear to set a precedent in that it is the first case of an artist actually going to prison to serve a sentence um, for the, the lyrical content of, of his songs or one of his songs. It's not the first time that someone has been convicted or, or received a jail sentence. The sort of irony of all this is that since 2014, 2015, around the time that the, the police and the judiciary were investigating Hassel or just before, the Spanish royal family has had a really disastrous time of it in terms of its public relations. A departure from the country he ruled for almost four decades. Against a backdrop of alleged corruption, Spain's former king, Juan Carlos, has written to his son, King Felipe, to announce his decision to move abroad to an as-yet unspecified country. That news met with shock and indignation on the streets of Madrid. The furore surrounding the former king was, was such that he felt he couldn't stay in the country. Now, he's facing some investigations into his finances, allegations that he had money squirreled away abroad, investigations into his tax affairs. So all these things have really dragged the image of the Spanish royal family through the mud. If someone says that the royal family is, is um, guilty of corruption, um, I have to be careful with my words here, but it's, that's really not a very controversial um, assertion these days. Tell that to Pablo Hassel. But if it's the charge of insulting the monarchy that got most of the international headlines, it's the other charge of glorifying terrorism that makes the story so complex. Because it touches on the divides in Spanish society between right and left and between the centralised state and regional independence movements in Catalonia and in the Basque where the terrorist group ETA operated. A, a lot of these cases are linked to terrorism of ETA, so because there are references to the, the, the Basque terrorist group ETA. Pablo Hassel, in, in, in some of his uh, the tweets uh, in question that he was convicted for that were used against him as evidence, he talked, for example, about a, an ETA member, Joseba Arregui, he highlights the fact that he was tortured by the police. That's, as far as I know, a fairly well-known fact, but he's sort of denounced the torture and killing of Joseba Arregui. Guy says that judges have a lot of freedom to interpret the anti-terror laws that are used to prosecute people like Pablo Hassel. And that freedom to interpret, combined with an aversion to any signs of support for terrorism, creates the conditions 
for cases like Hassel's to happen. You know, it was such a huge thing for Spain to face this terrorist threat. ETA killed over 800 people. And that has left such a mark on Spanish society and on Spanish politics. You know, Spanish political parties, particularly on the right, they, they talk about ETA a lot, even today, you know, three years after it disbanded. Maybe that's something which is, which is influencing a lot of these judges who are investigating these cases. But why is this happening now? As Guy said... ETA disbanded in 2011. But since then, convictions for glorifying terrorism have quadrupled. Social media may have played a role by amplifying extreme views. But, Guy says, it may also be a symptom of deepening political polarisation in Spain. I mean, I think this is one of these many issues where Spain tends to be split down the middle, you know, between left and right. And this highlights just polarisation in Spain Many people are sort of worried that Spain is going back several decades at the moment in, in many ways, politically and socially, in the sense that it's going back to these sort of old divisions of the past, which, you know, if you want to go right back, are almost a legacy of the, of the Civil War in the 1930s. And you know, Spanish society is extremely polarised um, on many issues. And this just feeds into that. The Spanish judiciary is no stranger to controversy. The jailing of Catalan politicians in 2019 for calling an independence referendum was seen by supporters of that movement as unjust and disproportionate. A problem that this causes is that it, for many Spaniards, this undermines further their faith in the judiciary, which, which has had a really hard time of it in the last few years for a number of reasons. Many Spaniards doubt the, um, they, they doubt the quality, the independence um, of their judiciary already. And these sort of cases undermine that faith even further. And therefore, that undermines Spaniards' faith in, the, in their institutions, in the state as a whole. The Spanish government has pledged to change the laws so that freedom of artistic expression is protected. But any changes to the law won't apply to Pablo Hassel's case. And while he remains imprisoned, the protests are likely to continue. Spain a couple of years ago celebrated the 40th anniversary of its constitution, which many Spaniards are proud of. But there has been a lot of debate recently about how effective that constitution is and how how complete Spanish democracy is. And I think there is increasing concern that that Spanish democracy does have a blind spot when it comes to the judiciary and that something... Uh, needs to change there in order to stop this erosion of people's faith in it. Guy Hedgeco was speaking to our producer, Declan Condon. Thanks again to Guy and to Declan and to Dennis Staunton. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.